A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World on RNZ National with Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. There's nothing quite like the thrill of poring over maps. They tell the story of our country in space. And as the cartographic team at Land Information New Zealand will tell you, over time. There are 451 maps in the 1 to 50,000 topographic map series for New Zealand, and they are all works of technical artistry. Alison is off to Linz for a digital map-making tour that starts with long-time map expert Chris Kinsett. You've been making maps for a few years? 50. 49 and a half years I've been working on this. Fantastic. And have you been a keen map user as well? Are you someone who goes out in the backcountry and tramps? Used to be. Back in the days before they even had maps, or you know, it was more like the sketches and what have you that uh, I used back in the 60s. So there's been quite a transition <coughs> in technology. So when you first started making maps, how did you go about making a map? Well, interesting, we still used aerial photography. Aerial photography has always been a key component in map production. It's the medium you use to extract the information that ultimately finds its way to a map. And I started off my career as a photogrammetrist, and it's the photogrammetrist that actually does the capture of the data. That is passed on later to the cartographer, and it's the cartographer that is perhaps better known as the people that actually make the maps. And they're the ones that take the data and symbolise it, add the colours, and make it pretty, as we all know now. So I've spent most of my time collecting the original data. So looking at that aerial photograph, yep. talk me through some of that data. OK, well, it's Lake Tekapo. And there's something that looks like a patch of pines? That's right. Shelter belts. You can see braided river down here. But the interesting thing on that one there is the green crop circles. So it's a, a yeah. brown Mackenzie country yeah, right. landscape. But you're quite right, it does look like someone's just drawn green circles. Yeah, that's the big irrigator here. And you see, it, see the clear circles where it just rotates around the central point, irrigating, and that's what you get. And we get a lot of that now. So it stands out very clearly on um, aerial photography. Would you put one of those irrigated crop circles on a map? Yes. If it stands out and you you know clearly seen, yes, we will put it on the map. And that's half the school, really, is trying to interpret how can you build up the map and give a good representation of what the land looks like without cluttering or underdoing, overdoing it. That's the skill of a, the, the people that now work here, who incidentally probably are combining photogrammetric skills and cartographic skills, whereas once it was two tight, no, separate professions. We started capturing aerial photography in New Zealand in 1936, Probably around about 2000, um, we started to use satellite imagery, and satellite imagery now and aerial photography are almost used interchangeable. We can switch from one to the other. And interesting enough, each sort of has advantages and disadvantages. The real good thing about satellite imagery is they capture all year round. I mean, every time the satellite flies over, it can, it can capture something. Aerial photography is still limited in the summer season. So how often do you find yourself going looking for a new image? Are you just continually looking at the new images as they come in? or do you... No, as they come in. There's so much information on photography that it can take us quite a while to extract everything. A question about the scales of the map. What kind of scales are you working at? Uh, 50,000, 1 to 50,000 scale is still our basic scale. We're capturing the data itself accurate to about 2 or 3 metres positional-wise, which is way over what we need for that scale. 
However, the data is another issue, and of course we make the data available as well as the map. So there's a lot of interest in the underlying data as well as the, the finished product. But you also got to remember, though, that we don't capture every single thing you see on a photograph. Our, what we do capture off a photo is largely governed by the scale, the 50,000 scale that we're going to produce it at. Um, that would mean all roads, but it wouldn't mean every single building. It wouldn't mean every single fence. It would be a selection. However, when we do capture it, it's hopefully highly accurate. <laughs> and that really is probably the, one of the greatest changes that we've seen in my time is that um, the, everything now is more accurate, uh, more current. We can produce maps quite quickly. Early on, did you find it useful to, to be a tramper who used a map? In terms of the backcountry where most of the trampers used the maps, not only did I find it useful then, but I still find it useful now. If you have an understanding of why people use a map, it makes it a lot easier to hopefully give them the right information on that map. So Richard, where do you come in? A topographic map is a graphical representation of a given place at a given point in time. And uh, the way the cartographer, myself, will represent that is by using lines, points and polygons to, to simplify those objects on the aerial photograph, the likes of the, the infrastructure objects like the buildings or the roads, um, to the natural objects like the trees and the forests and rivers, etc. Uh, so so we're looking at an aerial photograph an aerial photo overlaid on it. Overlaid with the current map data. Uh, on the right here you can see what the paper product version of the map would be looking like currently. So that's a familiar map that's got contour lines yes, that tell you the height? Yes, contour lines, tracks, roads, uh, a coastline there. And on the <laughs> left here, I've got my working uh, environment where I've got the, the newest imagery and I've got that information or that data overlaying it and this is where I get to manipulate it and move it around. Now, a line feature, would, an example of that would be this track that's right in front of me here. When we look at the new imagery with the uh, current data, often we'll get tracks or roads that are not aligned correctly because for whatever reason that track has moved or that road's been sealed, rebuilt, restructured, etc. So it's our job as the cartographer to put that line back in its right place, tell the story of, of the changing earth. I'm just using simple graphical tools here and a, and a software suite which is built specially for this, this task. Uh, and I've, I picked up that line. It's a, a, a matter of simply tracing that line or that track. So on the aerial photograph, you really are just tracing yep. on top of yep. the track that you can see. Yes, pretty much. A vector line, one mouse click, uh, one vertice, and um, change direction, and you're off again. Snapping everything into place. If I was to now grab hold of that line, for instance, there, there might be some metadata um, or some attributes involved with that object, which would give us like the, the road name or its unique ID, because every road is independent of another one. So that would be a good example of a line feature. If I mentioned a polygon, we would be able to manipulate polygons or create polygons to identify things like forestry or, or vegetation. So a polygon is essentially just a shape, isn't a it? A shape. That's all it is a very useful useful tool for us. We define a lot of uh, features on the map with a polygon. 
some of the most popular stuff is, of course, good old vegetation. And it changes so much that there's al it's always associated with a lot of work. <laughs> We're really lucky that there are um, other organisations out there that share data with us. And, you know, if, if two organisations are working on the same sort of data set like vegetation, then, you know, there's no point in doubling up. We can get together and share, and that's, that's quite useful and very powerful. It's made my life a lot easier. So in terms of vegetation on the aerial photograph you've mm. got there, we've got some paddock, we've got some pine plantations, we've yep. got blah, something that looks a bit like regenerating yeah. bush going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All these polygons identifying certain features are kind of, they've got a characteristic colour or a peck, like a, like a texture, to um, make it different or unique from another one. For instance, I've got this yellow polygon here, which is surrounding a, a pine forestry block, and we've got the attribute of exotic so that means that on your map it then comes out looking like little fir trees. Like, looking like little fir trees, it yep. does, yeah. And it's right next to another polygon which has got a different pattern or a different peck and that's to signify a scattered scrub area. What I mean by a point feature is a building point like these here. And then on your map it comes up as just a little a black bla box. A black square, yeah. It's a building of some kind. <laughs> yes, some buildings of note would have an attribute associated with them. If they were a school, for instance, they would church have... Church, maybe? Yeah, church or a hall. But they are the three ways that I have of visually representing what is true and on the ground. So you basically just spend your life peering at... But it's of New Zealand, and, and you may not have never been there, but no. you've become an expert in that little bit of country. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the rewarding things, I suppose, of, of working in this field, that you do get to look at you know, really nice, high-quality images of New Zealand, and you do get an appreciation for how diverse and quickly New Zealand changes. It's probably one of the better things about being a cartographer, I suppose, is you feel a little bit like an author of a book, you know. It's a nice tangible thing to do. You can get it done and, uh, and walk away knowing that, you know, you kind of contributed a little bit to the, to the story of it. Mm. Now, just out of pure interest, whereabouts in New Zealand are we with that uh, map? This is top of the South Island in French Pass, so that would be okay, in the Marlborough so Sounds. Yep. So as you can see by the, the data in front of me, we've got a lot of coastline on this particular sheet. So do you do anything with the sea or do you just leave that? No, because we, we sit right next to the hydrographic team so they're responsible for making the hydrographic charts and uh, the topographic maps obviously they kind of, they work um, next to each other and uh, they meet each other at the coastline if you like. Yeah. Where's yeah. your dividing line? Mean high tide or something? There's quite often a debated <laughs> point but apparently currently we define our coastline as high tide mark so one side is feet wet and one side is feet dry. You've got the paper map on your desk. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing yes. many changes between what's on that map and then what you're creating currently? Y yes I am. I, one of the things that we've noticed over the last few months is the high amount of change in the agricultural sector, especially around the South Island. There's a lot of new dairy um, operations down there, and they change the landscape significantly. You can very quickly get into the story of New Zealand and, and what it's doing. Now, you're sitting next door to Richard Graham, and you've got a town up on your computer screen, which is an interesting thing, because towns must be quite a different thing to map compared to the countryside. Yes, well, the urban areas and residential areas that we have are actually a little bit 
easier to do really because the, um, the residential area itself is just symbolised by a, a very grey screen and it of course has the roads and large buildings, industrial areas, that sort of thing. So what happened in something like the case of Christchurch, and I say Christchurch because you've got the map of Christchurch up, that has obviously changed hugely in the last five years. How do you deal with that from a mapping point of view? Well, the, the Christchurch Topo 50 sheet actually created a first in New Zealand metric topographic mapping, and that a natural disaster for the first time had actually impacted one map uh, to the point where we had to carefully evaluate how we were to represent the changes that were wrought on the Christchurch CBD and the urban areas that had been affected by um, liquefaction and that sort of thing. And we found that looking at the imagery, uh, we had to really consider how we're we going to do this with the limited number of uh, symbols that we had available in a city. We really only were looking at roads, residential areas, individual buildings and large buildings that had been affected so much. And the CBD itself went from being a large black block, having, of course, um, each block itself being dominated by large buildings, and given that there was so much destruction and demolition that had gone on, the actual CBD has now been reduced somewhat in size and, and dominance on the map from what it had been before. And exactly the same happened in areas like uh, Burwood, <coughs> Bexley and Dellington, in that the residential area, large areas have been completely abandoned, of course. A lot of um, houses have been removed and there's been a lot of widespread dismantling and demolition. So those areas are now looking very different on that particular map. So are you just doing lots of aerial photography or getting satellite images and just constantly reassessing what's going on there? Yeah, well, the particular sheet itself was updated in 2014 based on 2013 imagery, and at that time a lot of the demolition work was going on, particularly in the residence areas. But more recent photography has shown that there's now been the suburbs, for example, Bexley, almost every house has been removed completely. So our decision next, when we next revise the map, is how are we going to treat it now, given that the roads are still there, but they've been formally blocked off to the public. All of the houses have been gone, so we're going to have to look at the area again in a, in, a, in a year or so and decide, you know, do we take the roads out, even though they're physically still there but abandoned? Obviously, we remove all the buildings, and there's all sorts of decisions that really come into play, which we don't normally have when we're doing a standard update, as you've seen with Richard. The good thing about a topo map is that it is essentially a snapshot in time. It tells a story of, of a city or an urban area, rural area, as it was at the time the imagery was used to update it. But that, of course, will change quite dramatically. One of the things that I think you've got quite a lot of experience in is names. Tell me a bit about the geographic names that you use. Yeah, there's approximately 51,000 geographic names 51,000 in New Zealand. And initially, when we did the Topo 50 map series, all of those had to be placed by hand by a team of uh, five or six of us, I think. Now that they have been placed, most of them will stay where they are. But every time we maintain a sheet, we have to go back and re-evaluate the position of the names because new roads might have been added or other features changed which affect the positional uh, relativity of that name. And that can then be anywhere from large range names to small rural localities. Um, along with the geographic names, there's a lot of descriptive text such as hall, school, church, and that sort of thing as well, that um, when the school's removed, for example, or closed, then the annotation comes off, and that sort of thing happens as well. So, so geographic names can be quite challenging too, in, in a sense that any names that come out of, for example, treaty claim settlements, there might be dual names or new names that, that come out, uh, they are put into the database, 
and sometimes the length of the name can cause a few uh, challenges for the cartographers in positioning it relative to the feature to which it refers. And that is um, you know, where you get dual names like Aoraki Mount Cook, which have a forward slash included as well. So you've got to consider that forward slash so it doesn't get lost in amongst other detail. But we generally try and accommodate those names, given that they are historically important, as much as possible, yes. So, Fran, you're the last stop on my little mapping tour today, so where do you come into the process? Okay, so we're sitting in front of what we call our pre-press. So this is a software that basically turns all those points, lines and polygons that you saw the guys mapping into a printed map. So you've got a beautiful 1 to 50,000 map there? Yes, I have. So this is, this is the printed version. The software also produces the TIFF version, which is the digital version of this that you can download from the LINS website. It produces the GEOTIFF version, which again is a, for GIS users, so they can pull those into their software and, and use them directly in that. And it also produces the digital data, so people that want the raw points, lines and polygons can download those as well. So that all goes through that computer? It all goes through this computer, so it's very simple really. All we need to do is select the type of map that we want to produce. So we might want to produce a new version of this one and we would just click on that particular map sheet, choose the different sorts of output. So we use um, PostScript, goes to the printer, that's six colours, so we print, these maps are printed in six colour. All this used to take anything between, say, two, three months work by a cartographer. It happens now in about ten minutes. It really is technology is your friend, but yeah. you, you still end up with a beautiful looking map. Exactly. So when we set out to create this, if you like, the main uh, goal at the end of it was that people would not be able to tell the difference as to whether this had been drawn by um, a cartographer using his input or if it was done entirely digitally. And this is done entirely digitally, and we're quite proud of it. And that topographic map-making tour at Land Information New Zealand featured technical lead Fran McNamara, technical advisor Chris Kinsett, and cartographers Richard Freeman and Graham Jupp. And as mentioned in the story, you can download digital versions of all 451 maps in the 1 to 50,000 topo map series for free from Lens. Details about that and the Unfolding the Map exhibition at the National Library are on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.